Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor, and I love pricing. And today is going to be especially fun because we're joined by John Manning. Although we've never met, I first talked to John six or seven years ago when he was running a company called Pricing Profits. It was or is a brilliant idea, which you'll hopefully tell us about. But for now, let's start with hello. Welcome, John. Good morning, Mark. Great to be on your podcast. Oh, thanks. And just so everybody knows, you actually are in Australia right now. I'm in Melbourne. Um, 1st of July, we're on we're the other side of the date line from you. Um, new financial year in Australia, um, 10 degrees in Melbourne, the depth of winter. And most people are going to wake up to price increases this morning because that's what happens in a new financial year, new budgets, new prices for a lot of companies. <laughs> so, so, I wasn't planning on starting here, but let's jump in. Let's go. <laughs> so, so it turns out that a long time ago, I was teaching a life, uh, a life tech type company, and I was so thrilled because they got to do price increases every year. And most of the time, I teach technology companies where they're always focused on how do we hold our prices and not do price decreases. So I'm kind of thrilled that, that the whole industry says, let's do price increases every year. You're, you're not thrilled at that, obviously. Well, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's the lazy man's approach to price increases because, you know, if you, what has changed while people have been asleep overnight? Have, have companies got new competitors that have emerged overnight or have co- existing competitors launched new products or has the value of their product changed overnight? The answer to those questions is no. And they are much better reasons for price increases than the calendar ticking over from one day to the next. Boy, those are good arguments. So, <laughs> so typically, if I'm going to coach a company to do a price increase, what I usually say is you have to have a really good reason to do a price increase because your buyers have to believe it, have to understand it. And probably the only reason that I ever see work is the fact that your costs went up. Now, I get it. We don't price based on cost, but our buyers don't know that. And now here you're telling me Australia has this really awesome thing where every year we raise prices. And so, and so everybody's expecting it. And isn't that a good thing? Well, yes and no. I'm not, I'm not, it's not that the whole country is changing prices today. It's just probably the, the, lazy, the lazy people, the people that just want to do mechanical price increases are changing prices today. But I'm, I'm certainly with you. And I always said to people, if you're going to increase price, increase your value. If you're going to decrease your price, take value out. The two have to move together. Otherwise, you're just going to create problems. Yeah, people, love- people won't get it. And costs are just the... The, fan, the, the best thing to blame a price increase on. But you know what? I don't buy, buy from my telco because they're the cheapest cost or because, you know, from a retailer because they're the lowest cost. I buy for value. No one buys on the basis of costs. Oh, no, one cares, no one cares about the new budgets kicking in at any company today. Oh, that's absolutely right. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Okay, so I actually don't know the answer to this question, but how did you get into pricing? Um, it was more by accident than design, really. I guess I, um, I left school um, and I started an accounting degree. I got a job as a, as a trainee accountant with a, a large American oil company known as Mobile um, and checking the prices on invoices. Um, and I always joke that, um, you know, I, at some point I thought to myself, where are these prices coming from? And 
in a lot of in a lot of regards, the um, the oil industry is still asking itself that question: <laughs> Where do those prices come yes. from? It sort of seems to be a black box, and you just drive along the street on a Tuesday and petrol stations here or gas stations over there have got one price and two days later they've got another price and no one knows where those prices are coming from. Um, so from there, from the oil industry, I went into the airline industry and I, again, my my, um, my line there is I priced two types of fares. The fares customers eat and the fares customers pay. Um, so I worked in airfare pricing as well as uh, catering pricing and all those stories about how much peanuts cost and things like that. Mm-hmm. And from there, I went over to the UK and I did um, the highlight of sort of six years in the UK was about half of that time spent doing dynamic pricing for um, an entrepreneur by the name of Stelios Hajiwanu, who's most famous for EasyJet, but pre-Wi-Fi we rolled out um, an internet cafe a week that would operate on dynamic pricing. So the more and more people that rolled into the internet cafe um, would drive the occupancy-based pricing up for the people that came in afterwards. Hmm. So, um, and then, it could, sorry. No, I was going to say, so, you, so when you, look, I'm going to jump back to mobile for just a second. When you started there, you started as an accountant, but you actually got into pricing at mobile. And so then that next jump into airlines, you were already in pricing. Yes, pretty much. And okay. um, and I sort of realised the error of my ways with accounting and switched to applied economics. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> exactly. you know, that was, that was a bit more interesting than um, theoretical economics. And then all of a sudden, behavioural economics took off. And, um, you know, we'll probably talk about that at some point as well. But that, that you know, that's when it started gets excited when you got that intersection of of sort of marketing, microeconomic behaviour and all this behavioural economic stuff that, that emerged over the last few years. Yeah. Okay, so quick lesson for our, our listeners. When you were simply looking at invoices at mobile, were the invoices ever wrong? Uh, yes, from time to time. And was it ever in yeah, mobile's favour or was it usually in the customer's favour? <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago, but I think there's... It's probably fair to say that overpricing and underpricing happens in equal amounts. It's just that nobody, no customer tells you about underpricing. Yes, yes. That was, that was actually kind of my point there. And oftentimes, if we just go back and look at the chain of, gee, we quoted this price, what do we actually get a check for? We're going to find places where we're losing money, just in the execution piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, people, so many people say to me, there's got to be a perfect price. And I say, no, there's no such thing as a perfect price. But let me tell you that if your, if your customers are not complaining about your price, you're too cheap because customers will only tell you you're too expensive. They won't tell you you're too cheap. So you just play around with your pricing until you get a little bit of attention around your pricing. And then, you know, you're close to your perfect price. Yeah, another one that's really similar to that that I use a lot is that if you're not losing on price, you're too cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Because you got to lose some deals on price. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, so, I, and, and so many so many people are scared of 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 losing on price and and losing the customer. And I talk to a few companies and people and say, "Well, do you actually want them as a customer?" Oh, that's a good question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Tell us about pricing profits. Where did this come from? Uh, how long so, has it been going on? So I launched Pricing Profits in 2011, and around the, around the time, um, 
I was getting really annoyed because um, I was working for myself. I'm, I'm sort of – the business still goes, but I'm in a corporate role now. And people will come up to me and say, oh, you do pricing. Can you tell me how much to charge for something? <laughs> and I, I kept asked that question time and time again. And I just thought there's got to be, there's got to be a way to, to solve that problem, you know, typical entre- entrepreneurial thought process. And I was actually at a crowd – a crowdsourcing talk one night, a networking event. And, and Melbourne's quite, um, has got some very successful crowdsourcing businesses like 99designs and, and Kaggle, which has now moved to Silicon Valley. But um, they're both great Melbourne um, crowdsourcing stories. And um, I got asked a question during this evening, during this talk about um, pricing and crowdsourcing. And someone came up to me afterwards and said exactly that question. Hey, you do pricing tell me what price to charge for something and that's when it hit me why not use crowdsourcing to solve that pricing problem so to cut a long story short build a website called pricing profits and registered a whole lot of experts on the site um, and you were one of the um, you were probably the first or the second I can't remember American experts to join on board and people would come on and for 600 Australian dollars, they'd answer a series of questions that I'd devised. Those questions would be sent out to the experts and the experts would respond with answers to three questions. What price should be charged for this product or service? What's your rationale for that price? And any other advice that they wanted to offer. And I go, unlike, say, 99designs where it's a competition and one design is given back to the person that ran the competition, I gave everybody's, all six experts' responses back to, to the people asking about their pricing. So they, they had a, you know, a, a historic, you know, holistic view and a broad view of the, um, of the thoughts of the experts, as well as giving sort of the average, the min, the maximum prices, things like that. I think I, I love the idea. I think it's a really good idea. I have to say that I found it really difficult back when I was doing that with you. Because I almost never put a price on anything. <laughs> One of the best things about being a pricing person is that we actually don't price anything. We just tell people how to think about pricing. Well, here's, here's the interesting thing. So pricing profits now has a very different business model. So that model has now gone. And why did that happen? So I would ring all those people that ran projects after they got their responses back from their experts. And I said to them, what did you think about the response and what price are you charging? And they would say to me, oh, the responses were fantastic. I, don't, I didn't listen to, I didn't read any of the prices and stuff like that. But, you know, what expert so-and-so said, I've used as my website copy. And what expert <laughs> X said, I've used in, in my marketing collateral and stuff. And I quickly realized that people didn't need help setting the price they needed help defending and justifying their price and how do they wrap the context around the price to to achieve whatever they want whatever price they want to achieve and as a result of those telephone conversations i shifted the business model to to one that was less linear and one where people could uh, actually have a prepaid telephone conversation with an expert about any any aspect of pricing that they wanted to Wow, that is so insightful and brilliant. Um, I often do, um, I used to do these consultation calls and I do them once in a while still. And what we would do is I would talk to someone about pricing and their pricing problems. But what you find in, in an hour long call is it's almost never about the price. 
It's always about how are you running your business and how do your customers perceive your value and what's your competition doing? And I mean, there's all the different things around price, but you have to know all that before you can ever get to the price. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite questions is how do you know you've got a pricing problem? Yeah, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a really great question. So, you know, oh, because our salespeople tell me, well, have they got the correct sales tools to sell on value rather than price? And, you know, so, so many people think they have pricing problems, but they're not necessarily pricing problems. And the, the context is, is so important. I, you, you're probably familiar with Richard Taylor's beer on the beach experiment from, oh, yeah. the, from the 1980s. Our listeners uh, may not, so go ahead and describe it, please. Okay, so, so Richard Taylor is sort of one of the godfathers of behavioral economics, University of Chicago, um, co-author of, of Nudge, um, and he's, he's also got a recently released another book called Misbehaving, which is sort of a history of behavioral economics. But in the 80s, he asked a, a bunch of students if they were, two of them were sitting on a, hot be- on a beach on a hot day, and one says the other, I'm going to go and get two ice cold beers from the rundown grocery store at the um, that end of the beach, how much are you willing to pay? And I th- roughly on average in $1980, the, the price was $1.50. The person then had to turn around to the other person and say, actually, I've changed my mind. I'm going to the five-star hotel at the other end of the beach. How much are you prepared to pay for exactly the same beer as exactly the same temperature? Now, Rational economic man would say exactly the same price. It's exactly the same beer, same temperature, so forth. Behavioral economic person actually says $2.65 because the context where the purchase is being made has changed, the environment. And I often say to to businesses, do you want to be a five-star hotel or do you want to be a rundown grocery store? Because the difference is what you wrap around your pricing. Nice. And and it's always about what's our customer willing to pay and our customers willing, our customers willing to pay for let's call it perceived value and expected price yes and the other interesting thing i've done on pricing profits is i don't charge for time so when i decided to make this pivot from the online um, question base to the prepaid telephone conversation i didn't want to, i wanted to charge for value and the value that I was providing was answers to questions. So I devised three products, discuss, diagnose, and dissect, and each had a different number of questions in them. And the price for those products was based on three, six, or nine questions, not time, because time is, 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 my, is, is an input, and people are not buying my time. They're buying the answers to those questions. Um, and I've had so much positive feedback you know, about that sort of pricing model. Okay. And so what do you charge for each, each one? Can you share? Well, I've, I actually, it, the price varies because the experts on the site have varying degrees of experience and so forth. So uh, I think the top of the range at the moment, um, again, I operate a dynamic pricing model. Um, I haven't changed prices too much, but prices will fluctuate according to the feedback I get from from clients and confirmation that they're receiving value, but I think that the maximum price is two hundred and fifty US dollars for a nine or ten question conversation. And, and you'll you'll know this pricing is one of those areas where you know the good good knowledge, good rounded knowledge is hard to get, and and we can talk to people and make a, a really have a really quick impact on their on their revenue or their bottom line. Oh, it's amazing how fast and. You know, not not tooting our horns, but we are so rare. 
every once in a while I run into somebody who thinks like us and it's like, oh, wow, that is so nice. It's so neat. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's shift topics. Can we talk about uh, where you are today? What are you doing now? So the pricing profits ticks along in the background and my, um, my daytime job, if you like, is, he- is head of pricing at a company called CarSales. So carsales.com.au is a Australian publicly listed company that was formed 20 years ago this month. And it is a website where you can buy and sell a car, both new and used. So if you talk about two-sided markets, I guess we're a bit more more dimensional. So you can have private sellers, you can have car dealers, both new and your sort of gravel yard dealers and so forth, and sellers. Um, And we've diversified that business as well into bike sales, boat sales, caravan sales, truck sales, and few other sales um so i i've been there um just over 12 months and sort of my i was approached by the business to come in and sort of remove gut feel from pricing decisions so you know over a 20-year period there um they sort of used the dartboard approach to pricing yeah well that sort of feels about right let's go with that and my role is to is to bring a bit more um you know data-driven decision making into the the pricing process there well, first, kudos that they could go 20 years with gut feel pricing and do as well as they did. That's- yes. And, and you know, when I, you know, when they were sort of talking to me about joining the business, you know, we, a lot of their thinking was, you know, we, we get X growth a year, but wouldn't it be great if that X growth was Y growth and that the difference came from pricing? And that's really my... um. You know, my, my mandate, I have a big sign next to my desk that just says plus 5%. <laughs> People walk past, what's that for? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's next year's price increase. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it's also got to be value-based. So it's, oh. it's, not just, it's not just that 1st of July money grab where it's, 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 it's value-based, data-driven. You know, if the value goes up, customers will pay yeah. And, and so essentially what you're doing, and let's just pick a transaction because it makes life easier to understand. Essentially what you're doing is you're saying a car dealer has a car in a lot. Somebody's shopping online. They find that car. They want to buy it. You're getting a piece of the transaction. Is that? No, no. We are sending a lead to that dealer and that dealer pays us for that lead. It's very similar to, to Google. You know, if, if you don't click on a link in Google, they don't get paid a sponsored link. So if someone doesn't send a lead to a dealer, we don't get paid. Oh, that's pretty cool. So you, so are you charging by the click? When you say by the lead, how do we know a lead got sent? Uh, so a form typically gets filled out or okay. a phone number gets rung. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There, are, there, are other, there are other revenue streams, but that, is the, that, that has been the core revenue stream for new dealers so if you if you want to sell your car we would just charge you a, a listing fee until the vehicle sells there's no um, there's no charge for leads and things like that so we operate different pricing models but that's been the the, the dominant part of the business model that um that the business has grown on for the last 20 years yeah that's pretty interesting so can i test it for just a second Sure. How do you know that it isn't a better business model to charge per transactions that close? We don't, and we're constantly uh, evaluating alternative business models. 
I probably can't say any more than that. That's but, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but but you know, like like any, you know, we're still we're still a young company. You know, a lot of your listeners might have heard of BHP Billiton, which is probably one of the oldest companies in Australia. I guess we're one of the youngest. Um, we've still got um, we've still got a, a you know a lot of a, a startup mindset as well. So we're constantly monitoring other parts of the car ownership cycle just beyond buy and sell and what others what other um, entrepreneurial businesses are doing around their, their their pricing model and their business model I, I run a I run a little meetup once a month with um, with there's three very large digital businesses here in Melbourne that have had of um, sort of eaten up the rivers of gold that traditional newspapers had. There, there's mm-hmm. us doing car sales. There's a real estate company that's grabbed the real estate revenue. And there's a job business that's stolen all the employment ads. Um, and, you know, we're, we're non-competing, so we, we quite happily get together and once a month and have a, have a chat about business models and things like that. Um, and just, you know, keep, see what each other's – because we share so common challenges and so forth, but in a non-competitive space, so right. all perfectly legal. I am uh, – I'm just so fascinated by this concept of pricing models and how to understand it and how to think about it lately. Yes, and um, and how do you get, get the enthusiasm and infectiousness for pricing models across the line with people who just say – Oh, well, the most prudent thing for me to do is cover my costs. So, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But if your value exceeds your cost, you're leaving, leaving bucket loads of money on the table. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, John, let me ask another question before we wrap this thing up. We know July 1st price increases in Australia. What else is different about pricing in Australia? Does the Coriolis effect have any uh, impact down there in the Southern Hemisphere? The what? <laughs> the, the Coriolis effect. So, so what we've always been taught here in the U.S. is that when you flush a toilet in Australia, the water spins the other direction. Oh, that's that's what the name of it is for. Because oh, okay. it's the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> um, now that doesn't affect pricing too much. You know, I I don't think we are hugely different from the U.S. You know, a lot of our Certainly, our political leaders are very different, but oh. um, but but you know we change ours every couple of months. That's the that's you have four year terms. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, but you know a lot of our culture, whether it is popular culture, business culture, music culture, um, all that sort of stuff, is 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 largely influenced by you know other Anglo Anglo Saxon cultures like America and the UK and so forth. I've always thought the biggest difference around the world is is the pricing maturity curve. So, um, and I probably I probably wrap up because I've done a lot of work in Asia over the years as well. I probably include you know the Asia Pacific region as one versus the UK and Europe and America as a as a third region. But if you think of a product lifecycle curve and apply that to pricing, I think. You know, in this part of the world, um, Asia Pacific, we're still in the infant product lifecycle stage when it comes to pricing. You know, there's, you know, the big corporates will have pricing departments, whether it's companies like Qantas or the big telcos and stuff like that. And then there's a whole lot of um, large SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises that probably have some sort of pricing function. And there's a hollowing out in the middle, and it's a large hollowing out. 
But then you go over to the UK and Europe, and I think pricing is in the growth phase there. But in North America, um, it is much more a mature business. You know, you've got plenty of consultants, you've got constant conferences and events around pricing and so forth. And I think that for me is the is the real big difference in pricing around the world. Okay. Good. I think there's also a lot of the a lot of the behavioural economic stuff that that I adopt is also um, it's also driven by Western culture. So we don't know how well that sort of stuff works in say Eastern cultures in in China or the Middle East and so forth. You know, just stuff like um, you know Western cultures reading from the left to right and the Chinese and the and the um, the Middle Eastern cultures reading the opposite direction, how does that affect the presentation of prices and so forth? So I think that there, there'll be subtle differences in pricing for, for reasons like that. But I sort of think, you know, in the, in the Anglo-Saxon world, you know, America, US, Canada, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff is transferable and it's really just the level of maturity that companies and practitioners have in those reasons, regions that differs. I actually have another question that... I had the opportunity, and this was 15 years ago now, to teach in New Zealand. Now, I am not saying Kiwis are like Aussies. So just don't get upset with me. <clears throat> but, you, know the, you know the rivalry. Yes. <laughs> but, but I was teaching a marketing class, and I've got this mindset that says, gee, I'm going to be rich someday. And while I'm teaching this marketing class, I actually asked the classroom, who wants to be rich? Nobody raised their hand. I was shocked. If I asked that same question to a marketing class in Australia, what would I get? I think you'd, I reckon you'd get a, a more mixed response rather than a polarized response. How, so that was quite a while ago. Um, yeah, I, th- I, think you, I think you'd get, I, I remember when I moved, I spent six years in the UK and the reason I came back to Australia was a quality of life decision. And I think, you know, People can actually, as long as you can, you know, have an acceptable um, standard of living. People don't necessarily need to be rich. You know, we have a um, we have a mindset about owning your own home in Australia, and I think if people, you know, people can be happy just owning a little patch, you know, a little quarter acre block in America, in Australia, and you'd have, you know, have their bills under control and send their kids to school, and people will be happy. So I think, I, I, and I think, yeah, you know, 15 years on or whatever it was, I think you'd get a, you wouldn't get that response in Australia. There is, you know, there's a lot of aspiring people. And I think, you know, you'd probably get different responses across the, the different generations. Hmm. So here's why I asked that question, though. It seems to me that somebody who doesn't want to be rich, who is happy paying their bills and buying a house, and they're also happy with cost plus pricing. <laughs> As long as I cover my costs, I'm happy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, quite possibly. Quite possibly. It, it's um, it feels very similar yeah. to me. This. Um, did you see The Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, yes. Leonardo DiCaprio. That final scene in his... Uh, the, sorry, that, that, what you just described to me reminds me of that final scene in The Wolf of Wall Street where... Um, you know, long after he's he's had his day on Wall Street, he's he's running a workshop and he says to someone, "Sell me this pen." Do you remember that scene? That was in New Zealand. Mm. So I don't remember the scene. Pen. What was what was the point of the scene? I just how do you sell? How do you sell? And so so I think I, I 
I'm I'm terrible for remembering scenes in movie, but mm-hmm. I think he gave someone um, he he said to someone, "Sell me this pen as a as a sales technique," and the person just took the pen off and put it put it in his pocket and said, "Can I have your autograph?" <laughs> How are you going to give an autograph if you haven't got a pen? You're going to have to buy it. Um, but that was a sort of very simple response from a New yeah. Zealander as well. Not that they're simple and so forth, but um, you know they're, they're lovely people and they, um, they they live in a beautiful country. And to, to be honest, I'm not sort of surprised that someone didn't, you know, people weren't as aspirational then as they were might be then now. Yeah, and, and that was not a critique at all. I was just plain shocked yeah. when I, when I ex- experienced that. And, you know, from, from our perspective, you know, what that means is, is and you t- I've heard you talk about this time and time again, the best way to price is market segmentation. That doesn't mean everybody in New Zealand never wants to be rich, They're, but as with pricing, you need to understand your segments. There'll be people that want to be rich and there'll be people that don't want to be rich and there'll be people in between. And you need to cater for all those types of segments with your pricing strategy. Yep, absolutely right. Absolutely right. John, I got to say, we're going to have to wrap this up, but thank you so much for your time today. If My any, pleasure, Mark. If anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Jump onto the website, pricingprofits, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S.com. And there is Australian, US and UK numbers there. And um, just give me a give me a phone call or um, jump on a Skype and, and um, I always find it's easier to, to talk rather than text or tweet. <laughs> Great. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As always, we really want to hear from you. We welcome your questions, suggestions, especially any compliments you might have for me or for John. Please send any comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. Also, don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live. <laughs>